Uh, welcome to our fifth, I think it's our fifth week of the class, maybe sixth. Sixth. It'll, is the sixth class. Okay, our sixth week of the class. Good to know. Um, so last week, if you all remember, we went through, we discussed the uh, Eucharistic Propers, the Eucharistic Lectionary, and all that works together. And um, y'all were given some homework. And so did, did, did anybody do their homework and would like to share with class. I, Delaney did. Okay, Delaney, you, you are the brave yes, one. I you go first. I did you mine on, <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> I did. Um, but I did mine on the third week of Lent. And so, like, the first verses, give it us was. A, give, us a pa give us a page and we'll all get there for you so we can all look together. On the third one of Lent? Hold on. Let me look. I don't have it in my thing. I think I just got there. Okay, page 128, everybody. Oh, yep, I did have it. <clears throat> okay, so what do you want me to do for it? Like, I okay. read it, and then I went and did the morning reading and the evening reading for both of them, and then you said to find a common theme, right? Oh, wow. Okay, so you looked at the you looked at the uh, um, the morning and evening prayer readings too. Okay, great. Well, then, yeah, you're 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 ahead of the game. So, yeah, kind of kind of talk about um, what 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 was in the different readings, and then how it all kind of plays together. Um. Okay. So. I think from the first one, and you can read it for Ephesians, it was going about the difference for like comparing and contrasting the filthiness and the foolishness versus like the goodness and all those things and trying to keep you on like to choose good. And then that followed so in the same So this is the collect one. from Ephesians 5, right? The collect from Ephesians uh, 5? The collect, I didn't super. I'm not the collect. I mean the, the, uh, uh, the epistle. Um, epistle, yes. The epistle yeah. from Ephesians 5. Okay, so great. So at the bottom of 128. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so contrasting the good and the bad, the light and the darkness, okay. Mm-hmm, and then how you want to be on that one side. And then under the gospel, then it goes, and then Jesus talks about it again, about the divided kingdoms, about the good kingdom and the, the bad one, and so it's still keeping with that. But then when you go and do the readings, the Old Testament readings are talking about, like, the judgment and the law and how that's under it. But then New Testament readings are talking about the response to that. So, like, one of them is about... Um, like the Apostle Paul being like, well, we're all part of one thing, which goes to the same for this gospel. And then <clears throat> the next one is talking about how then we're under the law, but we've been saved in their, the spirit. But then the Old Testament ones are talking about how through the law, it's that that we've been redeemed. And then the last one, again, compares it and contrasts it to the whole new world and the old world. So it's like the good and the bad and then trying to pick that. And so for Lent, I figured because it's the third week in Lent that you're trying to go through and the first ones are all penitential. And it's always quick to say that like, this is the bad thing first and this is bad. And these are all the awful things that happen when you do all those bad things. And there's a bunch of verses I thought were funny that were in there saying like, no, just because it's not good god's really quick to like come in and correct it all so don't assume that he's not going to do anything about it and then the next response to that is like and now that we're here and we're in this part of it then we can go and act this way which i thought was fitting for lent because it's not just oh this is sad but then it flips it into like this is what you're actively supposed to be working on i think okay that's that's great um i, I very much appreciated how um especially on the the uh, the, uh, the epistle and the gospel seeing that common theme of that contrast between the two ways. And yeah, that's a very, that's a very important lesson. lesson. Very good. Uh, very, very good. Anybody, anybody else uh, want to share their, their homework results? Well, I, I could, I could 
perhaps say something. I, I don't know if it fits in, but I know last Saturday there, I was looking at the uh, readings and the ones I, I was looking at the uh, cradle of prayer and it was Psalm 96. And then I went into second Samuel six. And then I went into uh, Luke 22. Okay. Psalm 96. And then, uh, uh, and it kind of struck me about the idea of Psalm, you know, praise God, uh, praising God, um, God above all things. Second Samuel 6 was the Philistines, and they uh, had the Ark of the Covenant, and they were being afflicted. They had defeated Israel. And it struck me that uh, they aren't, weren't believers, but they recognized or they remembered how God had dealt with Pharaoh and uh, how Pharaoh had hardened his heart, and they didn't want to fall into the same trap. But they recognized God, and even though they're not believers, they recognized God and they didn't, they wanted to go ahead and send the ark back to Israel and perhaps God would have mercy on them. So this, this would be a group that they didn't, they weren't believers really, I guess you would say, uh, weren't followers your whole, but they remembered and they recognized and And they were going to find out. And if the oxen went a certain way, um, you know, it would be from God. If not, it would be just circumstantial all the afflictions that were happening to them after they got the ark. But then Luke 22, uh, Jesus is challenged. Uh, I think it was 22. Uh, you know, people ask him, are you the, um, the king of Israel? And, uh, and Jesus would say, you say that I am. There were a couple of times that it happened, but kind of promoting, it seemed like the idea that the, um, you know, the people themselves recognize or acknowledge that. And they may not be believers at that time, but, you know, maybe promoting their thought and their thinking about this, that the onus was kind of on them. But I was just thinking of the, the bigness of God and uh, how people would recognize that. And they may or may not, they, they might not even be people that will be part of the people maybe, but they, they still acknowledge what had happened. They remember things that had happened in the past. So. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And so, so oh yeah, Rand, Randy was looking at the, um, the weekday um, daily office lectionary for that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so as, yeah, just a kind of, kind of rem reminder, the weekday, during the week, the daily office is kind of systematic, but it's also a little bit seasonal in that um, they're going to choose which book they're going through based on the season. So right now in Trinity Tide, it's pretty much systematically hitting the highlights of, of, of um, an evening prayer. They're going through, um, I'm sorry, in morning prayer, they're going through the story of David and, and the Old Testament, and they're going through... Luke's gospel in the, in the New Testament. Yeah. And, um, and the cool thing about that is even though it's, it's, it's systematic, um, you do see those connections. You do end up seeing things that tie together because God's word tends to work that way. Um, and and I, I'm not 100% I'm not sure of the rationale behind which of the Psalms they chose in 1945's revision um, to go with which of the, the readings. The, I, I don't know the rationale behind that, but usually it does seem to tie in somehow. So that's pretty good. Um, and then, yeah. And when Delaney was talking about looking at the, um, the morning evening readings, 
Um, those were the Sunday readings. So those are a departure from that systematic way in the offices. Um, and usually they're going to tie into either what's going on in the church season directly or into those other readings from communion from the other lectionary, the Eucharistic lectionary. So that's very good. Uh, did, he, did anybody else take, um, choose, choose one, of the, uh, one of the sets of propers, the Eucharistic, the Eucharistic readings? And if not, we'll, uh, we'll do a quick, we'll do another case study um, from that and then, then touch on something else briefly. We're not going very late today. Um, nobody in my family has really slept in the last 24 hours. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to keep it to that uh, more closer to 30 minutes than an hour today. Yeah, but did anybody else um, take a look at some of the, uh, some, some of the readings, um, the propers? I may have, but I may have looked at the wrong one. That's okay. What 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 you what you look what you look at, Aspen? Um, I did the Saint James the Apostle on okay. page two forty six. Okay, so page two forty six. Actually counts. It totally counts. Because I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, we'll, um, we'll, we'll just we'll just see the pretty picture instead. That's fine. Okay, so yeah, um, talk about Saint James. So for the collect in this one, it's talking about um, doing everything without delay and being obedient to following Christ. And then in the epistle reading, it's talking about how um, James and Peter were killed because of following Jesus. And then during the gospel in... Um, Matthew, it talks about how um, the story of the woman coming up and being like, would you put my sons on your right and left hand? And Jesus being like, that's already been decided. So all of those kind of went along the lines of abandoning everything so that you can follow Jesus and making it to where um, it's not something that you can do half-heartedly yeah yeah that's that's really good the um the saints days and the other the other feast days um tend to be finding those connections are are are, are tend to be pretty easy which is which is really good i was actually going to use and i will still use one of the other feasts as a bit of a case study um so yeah you we had the account of on on the 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 feast day of St. James the Apostle. So that's uh, James, the brother of John, James the Greater. He's often called kind of one of those big three apostles um, in, in the Gospels. Yeah, it's, it's talking about his death. It's then it's, you know, James and John's mother trying to uh, see if he can, uh, they can be, they can be good in the kingdom. And then the colic really does sum up that, um, that idea of without delay being obedient to the calling. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. Good job. Very, very good. Any, anybody else have one they would, they would like to share for, uh, for our, our case, case study week. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take you all through another one as well. And, and like, like Aspen, I chose one of the feast days. So if you turn to page 235, we have the Feast of the Annunciation, uh, the, the Feast of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so our collect, um, actually, I want to skip the collect first. So I want to talk about the, 
the epistle and the gospel first. So um, we'll actually just take it all in reverse. So for the gospel on the Feast of the Annunciation, and of course that's the commemoration of when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and, um, and she um, became pregnant with our Lord. And so the gospel is really um, the account of the Annunciation. So it's just telling the facts of what happened on the feast day. And the, the important part here is, um, well, we'll talk about how that, how that connects to the other readings in just a little bit. So, so yeah, the, the gospel is the facts of the Feast of the Annunciation. Then the for the epistle is not an epistle, but it's actually an Old Testament reading. So um, despite what we talked about last week and, uh, and some of Delaney's complaints about it all, we, uh, we, 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 <laughs> Do have Old Testament readings in the in the uh, in the in the um, in the Eucharistic lectionary? They're they're just done in lieu of the epistle in a few places, and this is one of those. So that's from Isaiah seven, which is the prophecy of the uh, the Virgin conceiving, and the uh, collect then kind of gives us the focus here. It says, "We beseech thee, O Lord, pour thy grace into our hearts." that as we have known the incarnation of thy son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought into the glory of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the, uh, the collect talks about, okay, we, um, we're, we're celebrating today knowing his incarnation because of the angel's announcement, right? So the, uh, and, and the interesting thing about this, and this, this, you wouldn't know this just from picking up a prayer book, but a little bit of digging. Um, this collect is one of those ancient ones. It, it comes from the medieval, the medieval time, um, early medieval times, most likely. And in those days, um, the, the Regina Chaley prayer was often done, or the Angelus was often done at noon, which um, recounts um, kind of is in a Marian devotion recounts the Annunciation as part of the liturgy. So this is something that everybody knows. This is one of the big feast days um, in England. Really, until the 18th century, they counted the New Year. New Year's Day wasn't our New Year's Day; it was March 25th. Um, they had just had centuries of tradition of doing their all their civil work beginning on um, the Annunciation, which they called Lady Day, um, even even well past the time of the Reformation. So everybody knows about this. This is a big day. But so we all know the incarnation because of that message of the angel. And so may we have the grace to, to by our Lord's cross and passion, be brought into the glory of his resurrection. We're pointing forward what he's going to do. And this very much points to how in the, in the greater context of the Isaiah reading, um, you know, the promised child this sign is a sign of, of, of rescue, a sign of deliverance that's, that's um, also serves as a prophecy of the Messiah. And then in, um, in the gospel, we have um, kind of about halfway down, the angel said unto her, fear not Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be, he, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and be called son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Um, that's actually not the part I was looking for. I may have, I may have just 
read something into it that I didn't read. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, but but part of part of the idea is that his his name being Jesus is also pointing to that deliverance, pointing to that salvation, um, and throughout the story, that is part of the part of the greater story. Um, even if it might not be in our particular passage. And the other reason why I wanted to, wanted to bring this one up, kind of, again, kind of just showing a case study, in Holy Communion, we have one of those proper prefaces for the Annunciation. And so let's see. Um, page 77 Here's the, uh, the proper preface for the purification, the Annunciation, and the Transfiguration. All three of these feasts have this same proper preface at communion. Because in the mystery of the, world, of the word made flesh, thou hast caused a new light to shine into our hearts to give us the knowledge of thy glory in the face of thy son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, pointing to the incarnation as a way of the Lord giving us his glory, showing us his glory by the incarnation. So it all kind of ties together in the deliverance, the incarnation, and how all that shows the glory of the Lord. Um, and, and it always is important that, especially when it comes to um, the feast days, we do see the greater context is always implied. It's, it's not necessarily limited to what's in the reading itself. So, okay. Um, any, 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 any other, any other ones? Anybody else wanted to wanted to look at one before we move on to something new for a few minutes? All right. Um, does that help knowing, you know, kind of knowing that there is something to look for um, when when we are looking ahead to Sundays, to the feast days, and things like that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just be aware of that. Take a look at that. Um, and then what, what's going to happen is you're going to come to communion, come to the services um, already in a mindset to kind of get get more out of it. OK, let's turn then. Let's let's shift to something else that is related to this. Um, Roman numeral 50. That's that's the uh, that's the L. Um, for those of us who it's been way too long since we did Roman numerals in school. Um, way at the beginning of the book, Roman numeral 50, we have the tables and rules for the movable and immovable feasts. And then we have a table of fasts and tables of precedence. I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, we touched on it before very briefly, just kind of talking about how the way um, some of the precedences work. But I wanted to talk about this cycle of feasts and fasts as part of our prayer book um, discipline with that threefold regula of offices, communion, and, and devotions. So um, it begins by telling us uh, how to know when those movable holy days begin. So why, why are some of the, the feasts and fasts, some of those holy days, why are they movable and some of them are fixed? Like the Annunciation is always on March 25th. St. James Day is always on whichever day that was that we just looked at. But there's a bunch of days that are movable. Why would they be movable? Because it's based off of the moon and that varies. 
Um, what's based off of the moon? Like Easter or some of those Easter. other ones. It's off of the lunar cycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the and the key the key there is Easter, right? Um, you know, Easter Easter is is because Easter is based on on when Passover happened, which is on a lunar cycle, and we always want to keep Easter on a Sunday. Uh, very early on in the church, we decided. Easter ought to always be a Sunday. That was a bit of a controversy in, in the um, first few centuries. Um, the English church kind of missed some of those controversies. So it, it kind of lingered in England when, um, or in Britain, I guess, when Britain was um, separated from the rest of the Roman Empire just by, um, because of, you know, the barbarians and conquering and that sort of thing, or, you know, the the angles, this oh, blah blah blah, all, all the all the the various turning over that happened in the British Isles. Um, but yeah, we always count Easter on a Sunday, and it's supposed to be um, based on um, the first Sunday after the full moon, after the spring equinox, um, which goes back to how Passover is calculated. It's not quite like that. Uh, because ages ago they projected the calendar out a really long way and their math was not fully right <laughs> um, because our um, our solar cycle and our lunar our solar cycle is not exactly 365 days right so there's drift over time if you don't count for leap days or leap years which historically didn't always happen and so they projected out the calendar way 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 in advance and there was drift and there were different ways of correcting it over time but the the long and the short of it is um the ecclesiastical new moon so to speak is not the same as the actual new moon these days when we're counting easter it doesn't matter we have the internet but the point is a bunch of those move some of them move some of them don't and what's always going to what's going to happen then is that anything that's based on the date of easter so that includes when are we going to start Lent? When are we going to have Pentecost? When are we going to have um, Holy Week? When are we, you know, all of that sort of thing shifts based on when Easter is. Easter is the anchoring day. So then we have this group of feasts. So here's the table of feasts um, throughout the year. So, so this first part just tells you, you know, kind of when some of those major, major feast days are based off of Easter. Um, so we have this table of feasts that are to be observed throughout the year. So all Sundays in the year are a feast. Uh, what about Sundays in Lent? What do you think? This is totally a trick question to make you guys think. No idea. <laughs> We're fasting in Lent, aren't we? <laughs> Okay, so does that, does that mean that the Sundays, so Pam says we're fasting in Lent, so does that mean the Sundays are, are no longer a feast? No, it's the Eucharist is always a feast. Okay, but the Eucharist is always a feast. Okay. Yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> okay, so, so Pam's, uh, Pam's uh, saying both yes and no. She's being a good, uh, a good poet, a good, uh, a good arguer. I like it. What do, you, what, what is there, what, what, what do you all think? Does, does Lent trump Sunday? Okay, I see Reese shaking his head no. 
I see a lot of shrugged shoulders and blank looks because y'all don't want to, don't worry, y'all aren't on camera unless you speak. So, okay. Um, the answer is that, that um, the Sundays are not counted as fast days, in, in, even in Lent. Sundays are always feast days. Um, if you actually do the math from, from uh, Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, it's more than 40 days. But it's also less than 46 days. So <laughs> our 40 day feast, our fast is about 40 days. It's not even a f the full 40 days. But yeah, Sundays are not included in the, in the fast. Sundays are always feast days. Does that mean you don't fast on the Sunday? Okay, so there's two kinds of, there's two answers to that. Um, and let's put that on the back burner for a second. Okay, so we'll talk about feasting in general, then we'll talk about fasting and how that applies to Sunday. That is, that is a perfectly uh, logical follow-up question. Very good, very good. Okay, so we've got the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so that's always um, February 2nd. Uh, the Epiphany, which is January, I'm sorry, circumcision is New Year's Day, it's January 1. Um, Epiphany, January 6th, conversion of St. Paul, it's a, it's a fixed day. Purification is always February 2nd, all these other saints' days. Um, and uh, the only days in here on the rest of this list that are not saints' days is the Annunciation, and then a couple of the days that are part of the, um, the octave of these saints' days, like Monday and Tuesday and Easter week and in Pentecost week, the Transfiguration. So all of these days are feasts to be observed throughout the Christian year. Um, ideally, we would have communion. Um, we, we often do. Um, sometimes, um, and this is really on me, I don't always plan ahead well enough to make that happen. And during COVID time, we're, we're usually just offering anti-communion when we do this um, online. But, uh, but yeah, so one of the ways we, we would do this is we would, we would want to probably have Holy Communion on these feast days. And um, it's not, it's, the idea of a feast is this is not just um, wanton partying, wanton gluttony. That's not what a feast is, but it's really kind of a, an intentional um, partaking of the joy of the Lord, whether that is through food, celebration, um, at the very least through Holy Communion. So that's the table of feasts. Now we got the table of fast, and here's where we're going to answer Delaney's question. Other days of fasting on which the church requires such a measure of abstinence as is more especially suited to the extraordinary acts and exercises of devotion. So this tells you, first of all, that the purpose of the fast day is to increase our devotion. Um, this, is, this is supposed to help us in our devotional life. And um, it begins with Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. These are kind of the two really big fasts of the year. Um, our prayer book doesn't tell us exactly what that means, but kind of the, the tradition we very much inherit from the, uh, from the Roman Catholic world, all of us kind of coming from there ancestrally, um, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday would be days of true fasting. Uh, back in the day, that generally meant um, you know, no, no food. I mean, that's, that's, that's what fasting means. These days, at least here in the States, the general custom is 
maybe keeping it down to one um, small meal and if you have to, a small snack between that one, you know, couple other times a day that doesn't ever get to the same size as that small meal. That's kind of the, um, the, the, the way it's traditionally done, at least here in the States. Again, we're taking our cues from the Roman Catholic world. We have a lot of rules about this and we really don't. We basically have, this is when you, when you do it, but doesn't really tell us what that looks like. Um, okay, so Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, the really big fasts. Then we have the 40 days of Lent, which does not include the Sundays, okay? So your Lenten fast, Sundays are not part of your Lenten fast. Um, if you have given up something for Lent and on Sunday you decide to partake of it, that's not breaking your Lenten fast, right? That's not breaking your Lenten discipline. Um, different people are going to handle that in different ways. Um, the Ember Days of the Four Seasons being the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after the first Sunday in Lent, the Feast of Pentecost, September 14 and December 13. Um, those are the feasts traditionally of St. Lucy and St. Somebody Else, who I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but they're not on our calendar. That's why they're given as um, just dates instead. But so the Ember Days, again, they do happen at the Four Seasons. Um, they have their origins in praying for good seasonal weather, and they come to symbolically deal with the harvest of souls by praying for seminarians, clergy, um, for those that are that are for those that will be ministering um, in that harvest of souls. So evangelists, everything like that. Traditionally, we would make our seminarians and our postulants write a letter to the bishop on those days, um, kind of as a checkup. Okay, here's what's been going on with my education, my studies. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm struggling with, blah, 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 blah. Um, all the Fridays of the year except Christmas Day, the Epiphany, or any Friday which may intervene between these feasts. So the, uh, the, um, the 12 days of Christmas, which include the Christmas Day and the Epiphany, are complete feast days. Even the Friday fast is relaxed on those days. So what does that mean, um, these other days, these other days of abstinence? So we have the big fast of Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and we have these days of, of fasting or abstinence. Usually what, what this gets interpreted as is um, you abstain from, from meat, from animal flesh. Um, fish does, fish does not count as flesh for whatever reason. And, um, that, that's kind of the, the, the traditional way that these, these, the rest of these feast days would happen. Um, once upon a time, folks did go very vegan for Lent. The Orthodox still do. Um, they might go completely vegan for the rest of these days. We typically don't do that. Um, but, but that, that's, Again, the prayer book doesn't tell us how to do it, but it does tell us when to do it. And so especially, you know, especially those Fridays during Lent here in America have become the, the main thing. Although by the prayer book standards, that should really be extended to the other weekdays in Lent and all Fridays anyway, um, for whatever that needs to look, look like. So... What about that fasting on Sundays that Delaney said? So, so yeah, Sundays are not part of the 40 days of Lent. Even though they are Sundays in Lent, they don't count towards the 40 days, and they are not fast days. They're actually on the table of feasts. 
There is, though, a, a common method of fasting on Sundays, which is less of a fast than it is a way of partaking of, of communion, um, kind of focusing on communion. And, and th what that usually has traditionally looked like is abstaining from um, from eating before you've taken communion. And that's not so much an issue of here's a fast as much as it is, even though sometimes it's called the Eucharistic fast, it's more, I want the first thing I'm going to do in terms of my, my, my consuming, um, my first meal of the day to be the Lord's Supper. That's really what that, that, that is. Um, when, we, when you're coming to an 1115 mass, that could be pretty tough for a lot of folks. <laughs> uh, once upon a time, it was a lot more typical to have um, on Sundays, a very early communion service for those reasons. And then again, having, having the, uh, the rest of the, um, the main service being morning prayer, like we've talked about before. But we, the, the whole point though here is that we do see this intentional approach to our eating life, both in terms of feasting and in fasting, um, both of which help us in our devotional life. And it does help to kind of break the tyranny of, of food over us. Um, you know, I, had, I was on a pretty, pretty extreme diet a couple of years ago, dropped a bunch of weight, which was great. I put some of it back on, as I'm sure those of y'all can tell. Um, but the funny thing is, okay, it looks like you're fasting all the time, but food is still really in control, right? You know, even, even whether, whether it's gluttony or whether it's an eating disorder, or even if it has to be, you know, I'm doing this radical diet, um, food's kind of running the show. And what ends up happening as we build this discipline of the church's life is that our faith actually is in control rather than, than, than the food being in control, right? Our belly is, we're, we're basically saying to our belly, you're not God. God is God, and you know we're going to have control, which which includes both feasting and fasting. That's a lot easier said than done, of course. It's a lot easier said than done, <laughs> um, but uh, but it's something it's something as we as we talk about this prayer book discipline, this rule of life that the prayer book gives us that we can really work towards is is having this rule our table and our bellies as well, um, submitting that to the rule of, 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 of um, to the rule of life, rather than it being in control of everything. Um, any, any thoughts and comments on that concept? You know, I, uh, Father Isaac, I don't know if it's relevant or not, but I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 11, and I, then one of the issues, you know, people would come together uh, for the communion or Eucharist and they right. would be uh, eating or they, they'd come in order to get a meal. Right. I think a physical meal, or they were encouraged to eat maybe at home ahead of time or something like that. I don't know if that would be really the way it was, but uh, I wonder if there's any relevance to that first Corinthians 11, you know, passage. Yeah, so the background of that is um, in the earliest days of the church, 
the Eucharist was celebrated in the context of a communal, a full communal meal, not just kind of a symbolic meal, but an actual meal um, that's often called an agape feast. And what we see happening as early as 1 Corinthians 11 is that um, it's getting abused. People are, um, you know, not controlling themselves. They're getting drunk. They're overeating. They're being gluttonous. Um, some folks aren't getting anything. Some folks are just pigging out, um, you know, and, and of course, as is very typical with the Church of Corinth, this ends up happening along uh, class lines, you know, the, uh, th those with um, more prestige and wealth end up uh, feasting, while those without are end up, end up fasting, even though it's supposed to be a feast, and the unity of the church suffers. If you've ever been to a really, um, if you've ever been to, to, to a church potluck, that sort of thing can still happen. <laughs> I mean, we, I, I don't think we've had that problem at All Saints in a while. We, we tend to, um, we tend to be very generous when we do potlucks here and there's almost never, there's almost always too much food um, for everybody to partake of, which is a much better problem to have. But I've certainly been in church situations where that was not the case. And, um, you know, or, or, yeah, just, just discipline did not, did not prevail. What ends up happening regarding how that relates to the Eucharist is that very early on, um, having communion in the context of that agape feast goes away. It's, it becomes more of a ceremonial meal than, a, than an actual meal with a ceremonial um, component to it, uh, kind of as a way of policing those problems. But it does point to why it is important to have feasting and fasting as part of the discipline of the church. And, and, and we see this in the Old Testament, right? I mean, the Old Testament prescribes uh, feast days and fast days. Um, shoot, a good third of your tithe went to funding a big party, you know, in the Old Testament. And, you know, and by party, it meant, you know, lots of meat, strong drink. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a party. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, um, yeah. But yeah, it does illustrate it does illustrate that need. That's a that's a good that's a good catch there, Randy. I think I see a hand. Tracy, what's up? Yeah. I have a question. So, you know, they always go back to the food, which you know I can see back before, but now, you know, again, US and food isn't usually the issue. So when you're looking at some of the lens, you know, people are giving up different things and then it always goes back to food. How is it really that it's what you like, why is it always food as opposed to some of the other things? Like, we give up. I think I it's because... Like getting all that, like I said, I was joking with Kevin, because they all do the shellfish. You know, they're like, oh, we're fasting. Right. I got to go pick up shrimp. And I'm like, right. fasting? Or, you know, or that's not the issue that people struggle with, or they don't feel deprived skipping a meal. Like, you know, people do it all the time, but they feel more deprived if you took your phone away. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple ways that can be approached. Um, one thing is that we still do see, even though, um, you know, we, we don't, actual hunger is very, very low in this country um, to the point where they did have to at one point redefine it from, um, you know, you're going without completely to you're just not going with as much as you, we, we think you should. 
um, which is still a problem. I mean, we, we don't we don't want to see our children, our, our our poor, going 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 hungry. But yeah, actual hunger, even throughout the whole world, is a lot less of a problem than it even was 50 years ago. We've done a really good job um, mm-hmm. fixing that problem, not universally, but big picture, it's gotten a heck of a lot better. So you're absolutely right about that. The other thing, though, is we, st- we do see that um, our eating habits are always something that tends to fall outside of godly self-control. You know, why do we have such an obesity problem in this country? You know, I, ta- I say that as somebody that, you know, my doctor will probably tell me I, I probably need another 50 pounds to go kind of thing. Um, part of that's because we are, we don't have a good con- self-controlled discipline approach to food in general as this country. And that ends up being in absolute extremes. You have these crazy diets where, um, you, you restrict yourself in, in really weird ways. Um, but that's still food being in control. We also have the other thing where, um, you know, that value meal at the drive through is like two thirds of your, of what you ought to eat calorically. And you're doing that three times, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, and that's, that's, you know, and, and, that there is a lack of self-control always when it comes to our eating, eating habits. Now, there is also an irony that during Lent, the fasting turns into, okay, we're just going to, you know, we're not going to pub crawl, but we're going to fish fry crawl, right? Okay, who's hosting the big fish fry this Friday sort of thing? To the point where, okay, that's, yeah, that looks a lot more like feasting than fasting, which is why I do think that there ought to be a spirit of the of the law, or even though it's it's not a law. I mean, this is a discipline. It's not a, it's not a law. It's it's a it's a discipline of the church, not a law of God. Although the concept of fasting is something we do see scripturally, um, there ought to be kind of more of a, of, of a spirit of the law kind of thing as well. You know, if if our fast looks like a feast, there's a problem. You know, and that and that's something that I think, especially as Americans, we need to deal with when we're doing our Lenten fast. The other side of that is though, like you said, there are things that tend to be um, a lot more tyrannous in our lives, like our devices. And, and I, think, I think we can take the principle of the, fat, the, the, you know, the food fast, which is what fasting is, and apply it to other things where, where we do act immoderately, where we do act without self-control. And I think what ends up happening is that that food is just kind of that um, typical placeholder for our lack of self-control. But then it spills out to other things. You, know, you brought up our phones, our devices. Um, you know, it's probably a good idea for our mental and spiritual health to consider building in a tech Sabbath. Okay, here's a day when I'm just not going to be on my tech. And what ends up happening, I can, I can speak for me. Um, I get bored and I go to my addiction, which is my iPad, right? Or I'm afraid I'm going to miss an important email, quote, quote, important email from a client and I have to check it. Then I get mad when my client actually emails me, 
okay, but I'm inviting it, you know? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, and the main, the main point, this long rambling answer to your question, I think food is, is the starting place, but this does apply to other areas as well. And the, the other thing is I'm not, I'm not always sure that kind of having a personalized, okay, what am I going to give up for Lent? Let me go search inside and see what, you know, what, what I'm going to give up for Lent is a very individualistic thing. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but that seems to be the way that it's expected. I think it would be a lot more powerful if we kind of say, okay, this is what the church says our Lenten fast looks like as a community of faith. And I, I'm using church here in a more universal sense, not talking our you know, parish customs or something like that. But okay, as, as, a, as a community of faith, this is what we are doing um, to observe the, what does it say? The extraordinary acts and exercises of, of devotion for this season of our repentance, right? Um, all that to say, don't feel this pressure to come up with some individualized, this is what I'm giving up for Lent thing, even though everybody does that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's never been what the discipline of the church has required. That's kind of, you know, this feeling of over and above. Well, there's I this... think it's more important to do, you know, to do what's, what's on the page there. Yeah. Well, that's what I think. What is it? It's Isaiah 58, six. And it has that, I'm, I just looked it up, but it was like, it says, is this not, you know, it's the Lord speaking, says, is this not the fast I've chosen? Yeah. And it's like to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to heavy, to free the burden, to let the oppressed go free, to clothe the naked. So it's, it's that's the fast, because at first he's like smacking, if you go further back. So that's where, again, it seems more like more of it's, you're giving up your time of what you were doing, kind of like what you're saying with the church to go do something else. But do you know, because before it's like, you know, putting all these things before. So I guess like here I see it, but I just have never figured out where the food thing came from completely when you, I can see the other parts. But I mean, he literally yeah. he says, is this not the last I chose? Not, you know, put your stuff aside and go do these things, you know? Yeah, and, and what and what what's, what the Lord's addressing in Isaiah there is that tendency for us to be um, hypocritical in our observance, right? Okay, look at me. I'm being so pious because I'm fasting on Friday, and yet I'm turning a blind eye to um, this need, or I'm, you know, losing my cool um, because my kid is being a kid rather than, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, that sort of thing, or I'm acting in a completely selfish way. Um, you know, there's no mercy, there's no justice, there's ignoring the needs of others, but hey, I'm being pretty pious because I'm eating fish instead of a hamburger. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem um, that we all, I mean, we all deal with that. And, and one of the things that, that often happens in a lot of parishes is during these fasting seasons, they will come up with some sort of um, charitable focus as well to help um, focus us beyond our bellies. Well, and that's where I guess a lot of times it seems like, you know, when you look at this, he's like, yeah, you put all these things, but it doesn't look like you're doing collective. 
or like you said, it's, oh, I'm going to give up chocolate. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind yeah. of thing that you're like, it's really focused on your own, you know, kind of suffering where I could actually suffer and do good at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Like just giving yeah. up chocolate doesn't benefit yeah. anybody. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and last, last Lent, our, the bishop kind of addressed that in his, in his letter at the beginning of Lent. He's like, okay, you know, you're, you know, it, don't focus so much on giving up chocolate because chocolate has nothing to do with your soul. <laughs> he said, he's, you know, and it's like, okay, that, that's a bit of a, a smack from our very at times blunt bishop. And I appreciate that. And, 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 it, and there is something to be said that, you know, this is, it's not showing up because of my virtual background, but you know, it, the prayer book is the book of common prayer, not the book of me and Jesus by myself prayer. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is a discipline of, and a rule of life for a community of faith, not a community of one. And so, so yeah, I, I think that that's, that's, and we ought to be asking ourselves during these times of, you know, where, where, where the church calendar calls us to reflection and repentance, you know, what does this look like beyond, you know, giving up giving up our food you know what should we be doing in our community that we're not you know what should we be doing for those who are suffering that we're not what you know in what ways are we ignoring our duty to love our neighbors ourselves okay well it is it is longer than i expected so i'm going to go ahead and call it a night um and uh, I will be killing the recording here in just a second. But thank you guys so much. And uh, we will probably not do too many more weeks on the prayer book. But after this, we're going to get into the catechism um, as our next series to prepare those folks for confirmations, receptions, once plague times are such that we can actually uh, call Bishop Scott to come down and, and do that. All right. God bless y'all. I will talk to you and see you guys later on. Good night.